The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. This really is uh, is a crisis of, of confidence. And so that's also why the solution is not the classical too-big-to-fail solution. But we uh, have uh, decided that this solution uh, between the, the takeover of uh, uh, Credit Suisse by UBS uh, is, is more appropriate. That was Marlene Amstad chair of the Swiss financial regulator speaking on Sunday after it was announced that UBS would rescue its embattled rival Credit Suisse. The consequences of that deal for Switzerland, banks and the debt markets is the focus of this week's Views Room. Welcome back to the Views Room, the podcast from Reuters Breaking Views, where columnists from around the world talk about the big stories of the week. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, coming to you from London. Credit Suisse has been swallowed up by its country rival, UBS. Although some may have assumed the move was as inevitable as the tides, the fallout has been far from contained. Switzerland's decision to wipe out the value of a type of bail-inable debt known as COCOs has shaken that market and may mean that banks are forced to pay more in the future. Here to talk to me about the implications of this situation is Peter Tal Larsen, Global Head of Breaking Views, Lisa Yuka, our European Business Editor, and Neil Unmack, who is our debt expert. So welcome, Peter, Lisa and Neil. Hi. Hello. So I think, Peter, it's probably best to start with you because I think you were really watching, as as many people were, uh, this drama unfold on Sunday night. I just wondered, what what do you think, like, what was the most sort of interesting part of this deal, which, as I said, some people thought was sort of expected, but what led Credit Suisse to this breaking point, such a large bank and around for, for so long? Well, I mean, yeah, we could we could talk for hours about how Credit Suisse ended up at this point. Um, it's a very long and, and sad story. Um, but I think in the short term, what happened was um, Credit Suisse has, has obviously had lots of problems for many years, uh, scandals, uh, uh, losses on, on investments, losses, exposure to losses, collapsed hedge funds and so forth. And but what happened was that, that uh, really at the end of last year, the bank was trying to put together a, a strategic plan to say, this is how we're going to get out of this mess. And um, and at that point, a uh, basically sort of a run started on Credit Suisse and lots of its wealthy clients withdrew their money. And that was really the first sign that confidence in Credit Suisse among its, its wealthy customers was um, uh, was fragile. Um, so then they announced this plan, which was quite complicated, but seemed to have sort of stabilized things a bit until uh, a couple of weeks ago when when Silicon Valley Bank failed in the US, interest rates were rising and people started worrying about banks and particularly about bank deposits again. And so SVB then had, sorry, Credit Suisse then had another uh, sort of another crisis of confidence. And then to really top things off uh, uh, last Wednesday, uh, its largest shareholder uh, made some comments on TV, which were sort of interpreted as the shareholder saying that, 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 that this is the Saudi National Bank, that they weren't going to put any more money into Credit Suisse, um, which then knocked the share price and, and, and started another run of the bank. So at that point, uh, the Swiss authorities said they'd seen enough. 
Um, they stepped in with a backstop for Credit Suisse, but they also then, we subsequently learned, they also then uh, told Credit Suisse that it needed to sell itself to UBS. And this was a deal that's always been talked about, particularly as Credit Suisse's troubles have grown, because the feeling is that the Swiss would, al would always want to keep control of Credit Suisse and that a merger between those two banks would also generate lots of cost savings. Um, and UBS has always been very reluctant about the idea, but, but when it came to the crunch, uh, with the help of, the, with the substantial help from the government, um, they then put that deal together in a real rush over a weekend. And and again, Peter, what do you think are the sort of the, the most interesting elements of that of that combination or that deal? The price, obviously, three billion dollars, mm. not, not reflecting certainly the assets in the bank. Yeah, I mean, this is I mean, it's it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's Credit Suisse at the end of last year had had equity of 45 billion Swiss francs and it was bought for three billion Swiss francs. So um, that just gives you some sense of the uh, the destruction of value. Um, but the other thing that was significant about that deal, I think, was the extent to which the government intervened to to basically facilitate it. So they did a couple of things. They provided a, a sort of essentially a backstop and insurance policy against a portion of Credit Suisse's assets. So there's beyond us, if the losses go beyond a certain level, uh, the government is on the hook for nine billion Swiss francs there. They also provided liquidity both to UBS and to Credit Suisse through the central bank. And then crucially, they also changed the law over the weekend to do a couple of things. Uh, one was to make sure that shareholders of Credit Suisse and UBS didn't get a vote on the deal. So it basically goes ahead. They, they gave the, the uh, UBS a, wa a competition waiver in Switzerland so that it doesn't have to divest Credit Suisse's retail bank, which was something that people always thought would happen if those two got together. Um, and, then, and then finally, the other thing they did was they basically changed the law to allow the authorities to write down to zero some 16 billion Swiss francs of uh, sort of credit, sort of bonds, which 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 helped add towards the equity buffer, uh, to, to, to Credit Suisse's equity buffer. And basically, those, they were sort of designed to be to be written off in a, in a crisis and the authorities, but the authorities changed the law to say, OK, these bonds are going to zero in this takeover situation. Very dramatic, absolutely. So Lisa, this situation, I mean, we've debated this. Um, I've heard you many times talk about the idea of sort of concentrating risk, like why one of the reasons why it wouldn't make sense for, for these two banks to come together. I mean, what's your, what's your take on this happening in Switzerland and what this says about the sort of the Swiss financial system? Yes, we, we have to say a couple of things first. Uh, this is not the first major crisis, major bank crisis that Switzerland has witnessed. 15 years ago, UBS, the largest bank, almost went under. And uh, as a reporter, I actually covered that story. Um, but the, that that crisis and this crisis uh, are quite different. So U UBS uh, had invested, you know, made a lot of wrong bets in illiquid assets, including subprime mortgage mortgages and, and similar. And so it basically had, you know, big holes in its capital and the, and the state, you know, and the central banks had to step in to help it. I mean, in this case, as Peter was saying, it was uh, chiefly um, a, a crisis of confidence. But, you know, in both cases, you know, we've seen state intervention, regulatory intervention. So what, what does it say about Switzerland, you know, that uh, we've now had a, a concentration um, of UBS, which 
you know, is the largest bank and the second. Um, I mean, th this makes uh, the new bank, you know, uh, much more, I mean, so big, you know, that it kind of represents, you know, a half or more than half, you know, of the entire banking assets that we have in Switzerland. So the the the, the Swiss National Bank told us last year that, you know, that the banking assets uh, were about, you know, um, 500, uh, you know, five times the country's GDP. And, and these two banks together now probably have around... 260 you know 2.6 times you know the, the country's gdp so this is this is uh, this is you know enormous i mean this is quite uh, big and and you kind of have a situation where you've put you know all your eggs in in the, in one basket so you know big concentration risk and there's another thing I, I i wanted to say so you know what does it say about switzerland reputation obviously switzerland is a very large financial center in particular offshore financial center so for people who don't receive in Switzerland and you know stability is kind of the bedrock you know the, the big selling point or was uh, up until today the big selling point you know so to have had another crisis you know 15 years later 15 years after promising that there would never be such a crisis again I mean certainly has put a big dent you know in the Swiss bank instability armor. Absolutely. And another repercussion of this, Neil, I mean, I was covering these cocos when they first emerged after the last financial crisis in 2008, when this idea of bail-inable debt, that you would have, you know, equity, that you would also have these instruments that could be written down, either converted to equity or converted to basically nothing. There, there was quite a change, obviously, uh, that, as Peter alluded to, that, they, that the law changed and these bonds were written down to zero. What What's your take on that? Sure. Well, there's a sort of irony here, which is that Credit Suisse was one of the first banks to actually issue these securities and was um, the bank was sort of instrumental in terms of, of creating the new framework for how you should resolve banks in trouble. And um, and the way these cocos are meant to work is that when banks get into trouble, you can write them down or convert them into equity and that creates capital and it and it, and it allows the bank to essentially be wound down in an orderly manner or to be sold. Um, in the way that's happened now, what what is controversial? And so, so what happened here is the bonds got written down. But what is controversial about what happened is that they, while the bonds got written down, the shareholders who, in theory, ranked beneath the bonds, did not get fully written down. They got pretty written down. They only got three billion, um, but but they still got something. And if if things had been done how the bond market expected them to be done, that three billion would have accrued to the bondholders, and they would have had uh, some kind of recovery on their money. Um, not a big recovery, but still some kind of recovery. So, so that is the sort of controversy here that the, the, the Swiss government, by changing the law, has essentially reversed or upended the capital structure and violated this sacrosanct uh, idea of how you should how you should use cocos in a resolution. Technically, this wasn't a resolution; it was a it was a government-assisted sale. But still, um, so it's, so the big the big problem going forward is how do you say to bondholders well we will treat you fairly in future and and the problem there of course is that if governments and so the, so the bank of england and the european central bank quickly rushed out statements on monday to say uh, we will never do this we will respect the hierarchy whenever we have a bank resolution but of course the, the swiss government had also said that and there's absolutely nothing stopping any government from changing the law at the last minute again in future so so to some extent this essentially undermines the um the orderly nature of, of resolutions going forward uh, and that means ultimately that banks will probably have to pay more uh, in order to issue this particular kind of debt. 
And it's, I mean, again, from covering this market, this market does not react well to any kind of even mooted change, whether it's, you know, a bank like Santander thinking about whether it's going to call the bond, whether it's actually going to to repay the bond in full or or just carry on. I mean, what what has it done to the prices of other bank bonds of this of this nature? Yeah. Because, as you said, this is this is an instrument now that's used far and wide across across the banking sector. Yeah, well, I mean, basically, the, the prices of all of these cocos collapsed on Monday. They bounced back a bit now, but they're still essentially um, in order. You know, the, the yield that investors expect to receive from from cocoa debt is still the extra yield that they expect over risk-free rates is now still substantially higher than it was um, in, in at the start of March and before all of this this blew up. Yeah. So that suggests that people going forward are are nervous and probably will continue to expect some kind of premium. And and Peter, I mean. Uh, there's a lot of things, obviously, that that make this situation really fascinating to to see and historic. But one of the things I think is sort of interesting as well is how different, as Lisa alluded to, that this is from the last financial crisis, where that was really about investment banks betting on on various things or commercial the commercial mortgage market. But this is deposits, right? This is this is the the concern is how fast deposits can move from a bank and destabilize it in that way. I just want to be curious what are what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think in some ways you can think about this crisis more broadly. I mean, Credit Suisse is one of the victims of it, um, as sort of almost a, um, the unintended consequences of of the regulation that came in after two thousand and eight. So, if you remember in two thousand eight, you know, I was I was covering it in 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 London. Lisa was covering it in uh, uh, in, in in Switzerland. But um, you know, the problem was. Uh, banks were were very exposed to uh, uh, funding from from other banks and from and from the, the money markets, um, which was considered you know which turned out to be very flighty when they got into trouble. The, the money dried up very quickly, um, and the other problem was obviously that they had uh, exposures to all these uh, uh, to all these 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 credits, you know, particularly sort of structured credit based on subprime U.S. subprime mortgages, and so the, the regulatory. Uh, and then the and then the taxpayers had to bail them out. So the regulatory impulse after two thousand eight was to say, okay, right, less money market financing for banks, uh, um, you know, tighten up the the loans, stuff the banks full of capital, and then design all these structures, such as the bonds that we've been talking about, to make sure that when if things go wrong in future, taxpayers aren't on the hook. And so and so in some ways you could say, well, some of that has worked. Um, in the sense that Credit Suisse did not run out of capital um, uh, and doesn't appear to have, as far as we know, a massive problem with its loan book. But of course, what happened is one of the things that happened is that, is that banks relied more heavily on deposits because the regulators basically told them deposits were were, were safe or safer. Um, but if deposits if deposits are very large relative to a long way above the level of insurance of those deposits, then they We've learned in the past few weeks they can be just as flighty as the wholesale money was in in 2008, and that's partly, uh, I think, you know, technology has made it easier for people to move their money around. Um, also, you know, rumors spread more quickly on social media, so um, it does raise that whole question. We just say, actually, can we, you know, can we rely on deposit funding quite the same way? And if not, what do we do instead? Do we go back to wholesale? It's it's um, it's quite it's quite complicated. The other thing I would say is um, it's just in terms of uh, in terms of the, the, the sort of the bailout question. You know, 
even though the, 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 the Swiss authorities took this decision to write down those, those bonds, you could sort of, I mean, the people who held those bonds will disagree, but you could sort of say, well, that helped to facilitate a sale of Credit Suisse. But we've still, we've still found that in, this, in these situations, both in Switzerland and in the US in the past few weeks, when banks get into trouble, the state has to step in in some form. They're not injecting equity into banks as they were in 2008, but they're doing other things. They're providing backstops. They're changing the law to allow things to happen. There's still, there's still quite a lot of government involvement. And, you know, and the ultimate question, which Lisa alluded to earlier, is UBS is now going to be the only big bank in Switzerland. And it's going to be massive. Um, so, you know, if in 15 years time, because these things seem to go in 15 year cycles, if in 15 years time UBS gets into trouble, then what? That we Absolutely. don't know. That's it. The the eggs all in one basket. You got to hope that basket is nice and safe, because uh, I think that that is a that's a really interesting point to touch on, Peter. Is this idea that regulators were very against these big large banks combining in this way, but then when it comes to to weakness in the system, that's ultimately, I mean, the taxpayer bailouts I think are are too too problematic. That finding a rescue partner makes more sense. And certainly this this situation is not over, plenty more to come. So we look forward to reading from, from Lisa, Neil and, and Peter and, and Liam, our colleague who is uh, over in the US at the moment. Thanks all. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Tashlich in London. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange on Acast, Megaphone or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.